Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Often people say that high yield bonds are a leading indicator. They tend to show weakness before U.S. equities. If that is still true, there is no sign of weakness. U.S. high yield bonds have returned nearly 7% in less than three months of 2019. Are markets overly complacent or are they signaling uh, that the good times can last a bit longer? Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, Tad Ravel, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income at TCW, helping to oversee $191 billion under management, normally based in Los Angeles. But you're gracing our presence here. Thank you. So, Tad, what do you think? I mean, that this 6.7% uh, gain, dramatic and indicating that there is not any concern about a turn in the credit cycle. Well, the, the headline is very impressive. But actually, when you look underneath the hood, you actually see something a little bit different. In particular, you will notice that the triple C category, so the lowest tier of junk rated issuers out there, actually hasn't participated. So the spreads of the triple Cs are still, I think, about 850 plus uh, basis points over treasuries, plus or minus. So that's indicative that the fear level that investors experienced in the fourth quarter of last year hasn't actually been completely dissipated. Most, much of the rally actually has been, the investors are in fact more discriminating in the current quarter than we've seen them in periods that were similar in terms of uh, high returns like 2017, for instance. So Tad, given where we are in terms of the economic cycle, the credit cycle, um, where are you on the risk curve here? Where do you think investors should be going in terms of return here? How much risk should they be taking? I think you're supposed to be defensive. You're supposed to be high grading your, your bond portfolio. You're supposed to be focusing on a combination of traditional risk off instruments. That would be things like agency mortgages with some treasuries built into it. And then allocations to what we describe as bendable assets. So that would include AAA rated commercial mortgage backed securities, AAA rated asset backed securities, and um, investment grade credit, provided that you've done your, your credit homework properly and are uh, properly thinking through and controlling for the, uh, for the fallen angel risk. What you're not supposed to be doing is adopting what we would describe as an early cycle strategy. An early cycle strategy would be where you're essentially dipping into and making significant allocations to things like high yield, emerging markets, down the capital structure, taking on a lot of financial or operating leverage. You shouldn't be doing that. You said emerging markets, you're not, you're not a fan. Well, the, um, the, the emerging market asset class has many, many opportunities in it, obviously. But I think that as a, as a general statement, it has many of the features that uh, are similar to high yield at the end of a cycle. You tend to experience significant downside volatility when there is a, a contraction in credit, a deleveraging environment. So how far away are we from a contraction or a downturn in credit? Well, it looks like we were heading there actually we just a couple of months ago. And then uh, Chairman Powell decided that um, we were getting there too fast. And so he decided to do something about it. And of course, that's the whole genesis behind the uh, the most recent uh, Fed flip-flop and, and movement to, to being patient. So here's the, the, the question of the day and the question of the cycle, which is, can the Fed ultimately direct the movement of the clouds? Um, are they that skilled and that powerful that they can delay the end of the cycle forever? Um, or have they simply delayed it for, for now? I think we're in the camp that says they've delayed it for now. And when did, 
When does the market essentially decide to, in effect, veto the Fed's decision? Well, who can say? So you talked about the Fed flip-flopping, and obviously today we're going to hear from Fed and Chairman Powell this afternoon. What do you expect to hear that maybe the market's not discounting today? Do you expect anything unusual coming out of the Fed today? Absolutely not. I Absolutely think, not. I think, <laughs> I think that uh, the, the bravado with which the, the Fed spoke of five months ago, right? It was only, I think, in September where Powell said something to the effect, we are a long way from being, being neutral. We got lots of rate rises. We're going to shrink that balance sheet. Look how quickly uh, or how easily a, uh, a whiff of uh, cold winter risk blowing into the markets change the Fed's mind. I think that they are going to be very careful and measured in what they say today to keep investors on the on what they would view as the straight and narrow. Before we let you go, I want to get in the weeds a little bit with respect to energy high yield bonds, because I think that there has been a really notable underperformance in this space. And there have been some huge potholes. I was looking yesterday, for example, EP Energy, uh, which has more than $4 billion of debt, bonds falling 40 cents in two days after disappointing earnings. Do you think that there are more bankruptcies to come in the shale patch? Uh, y- yes, is the short answer. And, <laughs> and I think that I think that your example is an excellent one, I think, in terms of illustrating the asymmetry with which investors are approaching the market, which is that all you saw, as far as I know, was a disappointing earnings number coming right? out of the company. And that was enough, basically, to utterly reprice the capital structure of the business. So the complacency with which we saw investors operate a couple of years ago doesn't really seem to be in force any longer. So, Ted, is there any, just t- 10 seconds, any area that you're just avoiding, like the plague? Uh, well, y- yes, there there are areas to, to avoid, like the plague, but they <laughs> tend to be, They, they I, I don't want to give you a broad brushstroke. There are there are specific areas and subsectors that you should be very careful and thoughtful about. Okay, but you're generally risk-off. That's kind of taking away from, from Ted. Ted, thank, thank you very much. Ted. Thank you. Cautious, cautious. It's a better way. Tad Ravel, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income for TCW, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers uh, studio. We thought it'd be very interesting to get a sense of what local and regional banks, how they are dealing with the current interest rate environment and how their customers are reacting. Uh, so we are very fortunate today to have Frank Sorrentino join us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Uh, Frank is chairman and chief executive officer of Connect One Bank, which trades on the NASDAQ under the symbol CNOB. Frank, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Um, I know you have your finger on the pulse of kind of where rates are going. That's your business. What do you expect to hear from uh, the Fed today? Well, thanks for having me again. But uh, I don't think anyone's expecting any big surprise today. I think the Fed has done a great job of telegraphing uh, what's happening here uh, over the last 30 or 60 days. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty clear to me that the, the, the Fed is on pause for right now and, and looking for some additional information. All right. I want some additional <clears throat> information about the housing market in particular. And I know that you have... Uh, quite a long history of expertise in this area. You used to actually be 
a home builder, right? That is correct. So what are you seeing right now? I'm really having a hard time getting a read on the U.S. housing market, whether it's slowing down or whether there was just a pause when mortgage rates rose and that it's now uh, picking back up. You know, I'll tell you, I, I, from what we see from our client base, and it's really dependent on specific market areas, but certainly in the market that Connect One represents in the New York metro market, we've never really fully recovered from the recession, and there's still a lack of available brand new housing that's I think is required. And so at various price points there is you would you wouldn't believe tremendous demand for for that product and with mortgage rates still close to 4%, it's a very compelling time to purchase a home. Um, Builders just can't find enough property, can't put up the product fast enough in certain markets. Now, of course, we keep reading the headlines about some of the very, very high-end real estate that's lagging on the marketplace today, but that's not really indicative of what's going on across uh, the rest of the country. So, Frank, your, 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 your bank, your institution is a metro New York institution. Um, what are your local, regional, mid-size customers telling you about just the overall economic community? They're... they're their willingness to invest in their in their company. Look, people were very nervous uh, as we came into the beginning of the year. Thought that uh, uh, the interest rate cycle was going to be a runaway train. Rates were going to go higher, and people started thinking very, very hard about some of the transactions that they may have been contemplating. Whether they were going to buy something, invest in their companies, add additional staff, whatever. Uh, I think, but as the as the year has unfolded, and we're starting to see that the Fed has backed up a little bit, and we believe now that uh, we're more in a more neutral environment relative to interest rates, uh, our clients are actually bullish about where things are today. And you know, this whole notion of, of climbing a wall of worry, in my opinion, is a really good thing. It's making people be very thoughtful about every decision that they make. But at the end of the day, acquisitions are happening, investment is happening, hiring is happening. The biggest complaint we're, we're hearing about is the availability of qualified staff today that is hindering certain people's growth plans. So so pretty bullish uh, is what our clients are, are, are reporting to us, notwithstanding what we're reading in the news, right, or what we're reading in the newspaper. So Frank, you talk about consolidation. There has been consolidation in a number of different sectors, including in the banking sector. And I know JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon uh, came out and said he expected quite a bit more Bank of America reiterating that. Uh, from your perspective, Connect One has about $6 billion in assets, uh, 29 locations. Are you seeing opportunities for acquisitions or do you think that there will be uh, sort of ongoing consolidation that will affect you? So uh, as you know, we've taken advantage of the uh, merger an acquisition marketplace. Uh, we did a large uh, merger of equals back in 2014, and we just completed a merger at the at the beginning of this year, starting on January 2nd, uh, which increased our size. And and yes, there is, I believe, a a buildup in 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 the desire for smaller banks to want to get together uh, in order to share the expense base that's required to run a financial institution today. And when we look at what the marketplace looks like today, you know, as I said before, 20 years ago, there were some 20,000 banks, there's 5,000 banks today. I think we're headed very rapidly to closer to three. So Frank, the news that Amazon was coming to Queens and then not coming to Queens, as a New York Metro lender, what do you take away from that as, a, as it relates to is New York open for business? 
So, look, I, I think New York is definitely open for business. I, I, I'm not sure. I don't want to get into the political discourse about what may or may not have happened or what was or wasn't said. But at the end of the day, um, every major company is investing here in New York. And whether it is Amazon and notwithstanding what, you know, the, the, the HQ2 conversation, but they're investing in New York. Google's investing in New York. Facebook, all the technology companies, all the financial institutions, uh, there is a tremendous amount of of investment coming into this area. We're feeling it, we're seeing it, and uh, I think it's a big positive for New York, and I would say today New York is definitely still open for business. Just uh, lastly here, I'm curious about consumer confidence because this has sort of been uh, an ongoing strength of, uh, of the market, that consumers just continue to be confident. Are you seeing any potential headwinds to that at this point? You know, again, I think this wall of worry concept is, is something that keeps coming up. And when rates started to run up quickly uh, at the end of last year, or by the end of last year, I think that really put a little ding in consumer confidence and what was coming down the pike, uh, you know, later on. I think as we stand here today, though, I think the consumer feels pretty good and is out there spending. Frank Sorrentino, thank you so much for being with us. Always wonderful having you on. Thank Frank you. Sorrentino is chairman and chief executive officer of Connect One Bank based in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. He is joining us here today in our Bloomberg Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios in New York. Uh, let's give you a sense of what is happening in markets ahead of that Fed meeting. The answer, nothing. Not very much at all. The markets are pretty much flat. We've a been saying bit down. that for quite some time, haven't but, we? And, and this is sort of, uh, to me, one of the big question marks in markets today, which is uh, there has been such a reduction in volatility at this point that a growing number of analysts are saying uh, that it does sort of foretell some kind of broader uh, whiplash akin to the 2013 taper tantrum uh, when we saw volatility shrink to the same kinds of degree. Well, there certainly is a lot of news out of the auto industry today, including in BMW's profit warning, which knocked that stock down 5%. And also news out of Ford Motor Company, where the company plans to spend about $900 million and hire about 900 workers to build electric and self-driving vehicles in Michigan, while moving production of a small commercial van to Mexico from Europe. To help us dig through those issues, we bring in and welcome David Welch. David is the Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News. Uh, joining us from the Detroit Bureau. David, welcome. Let's start with that Ford news. How big of a news item is that for Ford? How material is this? Well, this is pretty big because all we've heard about recently from the car companies is cutting jobs, cutting back. Uh, even uh, the BMW news you mentioned is sort of kicking off a big austerity program for them to get their profits in line. Everybody's just uh, cutting jobs out, whether it be white-collar engineers or blue-collar assemblers uh, in the areas where they make conventional gasoline-powered cars. Uh, and so you got a couple things going on with Ford. Not only is it interesting that they're adding jobs, it's, it's quite a few of them. 900 is a lot. Uh, last week, General Motors said they were going to hire 1,000 people at its cruise automation subsidiary that makes self-driving software and technology. So, look, the bottom line here is if you make electric cars, if you make self-driving cars, that's a good place to be. If you're an engineer who releases brake calipers or you're an assembler of uh, gasoline-powered sedans, you're in trouble. And, uh, and, and, and that's what's really going on. But uh, what Ford is saying, hiring 900 people for a, uh, an underused plant near Detroit to make electric cars, that's a lot of people. So it tells us they're going to be making a lot of EVs. 
It also tells us that Ford is making quite an interesting uh, public relations move announcing this. The same day that President Trump visits an Ohio tank plant after a sharp criticism of General Motors, how much is this sort of politically motivated as far as the timing goes? Uh, I would say the timing of the announcement, absolutely. Now, Ford, GM, all the car makers, they don't just flick a switch on and say we're going to add jobs or do something at a, at a plant overnight. So this has been planned for some time because they had to engineer the vehicles. But uh, on the eve of a, uh, or I should say the morning of an evening rally uh, that President Trump is having after he spent the weekend bashing General Motors over cutting jobs in Ohio, yeah, you know, this is Ford's way of kind of sticking uh, sticking it in, uh, the knife into their crosstown rival, I think. And also, look, early in Trump's uh, presidency, he really was beating up Ford uh, for not producing enough in the U.S. And GM kind of got a free pass for a while, even though GM has more factories and, and, and makes more vehicles in Mexico than Ford does. Now that uh, that Ford is uh, is kind of you know in good stead with the president over adding jobs. Why not make hay out of it, especially right. when GM's the one getting the beating these days? But from a, a corporate perspective, is Ford uh, doing the right thing? Ford shares down two point two percent right now. I'm wondering. This comes after BMW issued a profit warning, saying that earnings will fall well below last year's level, citing among other things the cost of making electrical vehicles. I mean, how much is this not paying off yet? This is the problem that car companies have is you have to make electric cars because Tesla is driving this whole thing where governments and increasingly consumers want EVs now where they're going to, right? Not every consumer does, but that's where the market is going, whether it's from a regulatory standpoint or eventually uh, from a consumer standpoint. The problem is when are consumers really going to be buying a lot of these and when will these cars make money? GM says that its next round of EVs will make money starting in about 2020. They say they'll be profitable. Will they be as profitable as the current vehicles? Investors are dubious. So when they see these investments, they know that car companies have to do this. But that doesn't really help them. It doesn't help investors because they're they're worried they can make any money on these vehicles. And if they do, it'll be lower margins. So why should they put their money elsewhere? Very easy for investors to say, hey, you know what? Let's let these guys start making EVs and see if it hurts or doesn't hurt or even helps the bottom line. We'll put our money somewhere else while that whole thing is playing out. This interim period here when everybody is investing in self-driving cars or electric cars, waiting for those businesses to pay off, it's going to be tough uh, for them to deal with investors uh, in this time period because it's a lot of money being spent that you're not going to see return on maybe for several years, maybe for a decade for some of this stuff. So, David, where is Ford Motor Company relative to its peers in terms of its uh, electric and self-driving vehicles from a competitive perspective. If you look at what's on the market now, they they really they they have more hybrids than they have pure EVs. It's really Tesla, General Motors, uh, Nissan to a certain degree. They they have an EV out there. It's it's not a great one in terms of battery range, but they've been in that business for quite a while. Those are the three main players. The German car makers are coming out with a lot of electric vehicles in the next year or two. So you're going to see a wave from the what's called the, the Porsche Volkswagen. Uh, combine. You'll see Audi's, Volkswagen's, Porsche EVs coming out. They're, they're already taking orders, I think, on the Porsche Taycan EV. So uh, Ford's kind of trailing behind those players right there. But the fact that they're they're uh, 
uh, going to be staffing this plant up tells you that they're they're going to be racing and catching up pretty quickly. Broadening out a little bit beyond electric vehicles, I'm wondering, BMW's profit warning comes at sort of a tenuous time for the auto industry at large. I'm wondering how concerning it is uh, that they did say that earnings would fall so far below last year's level, at the same time as Nissan saying that uh, it's it's not going to necessarily see as much of an expansion in China as it had previously thought. Yeah, there, there's a... There's a kitchen sink aspect to what BMW told us today, right? Everybody has to invest a lot of money in cars, in, in electric cars and autonomy right now, and it's costing them, and, and they're not getting a return. So we, 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 you know, we talked about that, and that, that was a big piece of what BMW said this morning, that, that those costs are, are really hurting their bottom line. So it's a pretty big deal from that perspective. Now, I think they're doing this at a time when they know the markets are getting soft. China took a step back last year, and it's still kind of uneasy. The U.S., still very strong levels historically, but still stepping backwards. And the other markets, the emerging markets where everyone sees growth, places like South America, Brazil, uh, especially India and Russia, just a lot of reasons that, that things aren't growing there. A lot of instability, uh, either with infrastructure in the case of India, politics with Russia. So no one's really seeing a lot of growth in their car business right now. So if you're going to tell investors that EVs and AVs, uh, you know, that's industry parlance for autonomous vehicles are going to cost you a lot of money, hit the bottom line. You might as well do it when the markets are lousy in the big places where you've been seeing some growth. Kind of kitchen sink everything at once, take the hit on your share price, take the hit on your profits, start leaning up. And then when things start to grow again, when the cycle turns back up, then you can start boasting about how your EVs are selling great and they're breaking even or making money and maybe you'll get some enthusiasm. But I get the sense that the car companies, they're just clouds all around them. The, the business isn't bad. Everyone's, this isn't crisis time in terms of companies threatened with bankruptcy like we saw a decade ago. But it is crisis time for investor interest, put it that way. And I, and I think you're going to see the stocks take a beating for a while. David Welch, thank you so much for being with us. David Welch, Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News, coming to us from Detroit. Well, I think both employers and employees agree that health care costs, the inflation of health care costs, is getting you know very much a challenge for both parties. Recently, there were Senate hearings on drug pricing where senators challenged top executives of seven pharmaceutical companies on the spiraling costs of prescription drugs. To help us look at this complicated issue, we welcome Michael Ray. Michael is a founder and CEO of RX Saving Solutions based in Overland Park, Kansas. Uh, Michael joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Michael, welcome. You know, everyone agrees here that drug prices are too high. The inflation associated with drug prices and drug uh, therapies are, you know, very much of an issue for both employers and employees. Is there, what is the best way, or is there any way to kind of manage these costs? Yeah, I think that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a transparent market where information flows freely is the best way to manage it. I think that when consumers uh, have access to information uh, about pricing and therapy options, they can make decisions that are in both their best financial interest and also that of the health plan or employer that ends up paying a lot of that uh, cost of the drug. So, Michael, it's interesting because we are heading toward the 2020 election season. Joe Biden is expected to announce his uh, his his throwing his hat into the ring to become a candidate uh, for the Democratic Party. I I'm surprised we haven't heard more about reducing drug prices. Are you? Um, I think that 
what has become evident is this is a difficult subject um, and topic to really address and actually bring about meaningful change. Everyone agrees with the idea that you know both bipartisan support that we want to lower drug prices, but how to actually do that has stymied most efforts to do so thus far. So in other words, because it's complicated and because it's not a very sexy topic, uh, candidates are not going to necessarily make that a, uh, a sort of campaign issue in the way that perhaps otherwise they would. Is that well? I think it, I think it is a sexy topic that most people can identify with, and so uh, you know you're going to see uh, candidates talk about it more and more. Um, I think it hasn't probably been as much of a focal point recently, uh, just given the lack of progress that's been made in the bills that have kind of come before the Senate and, and the House, uh, and you know thus far. So, but it's 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 clear that big pharma. There's really very little leverage that can be placed upon big pharma to literally cut drug prices. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a free open market. They can set the list prices for the drugs they own. All right. So they if, want. I'm a, if I'm a large corporation, or even, let's, let's, if I'm a small to mid-sized business, what are some of the ways that I can manage my health care costs and my employees for the benefit of my employees? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few ways, and, and most employ a, a pharmacy benefit manager that, that brings about negotiation tactics to, uh, to the market tries to set up formularies that you know get rid of the expensive drugs and, and advantage the less expensive drugs. Um, ultimately, though, that information does not get to consumers the way it needs to, right? So you go into the doctor, they prescribe a medication, you take it to the pharmacy and fill it. What if there was drug B that was $10 instead of 100 That information gets lost, and so there's this missing component that, that is not translated to the consumer that needs to be. So, Michael, what is the bill that you think is most promising, either currently uh, going through Congress or that you've heard some candidates or current uh, lawmakers discuss? I would say uh, elimination of the rebates. Um, It's the most basic. It's easy for uh, most parties to understand. Um, You know, I think there's bipartisan support for it, but the specifics of how it's crafted uh, will make all the difference in whether or not it's effective in lowering costs. Can you please just remind us what the rebates are and who would lose out if uh, if they did remove these rebates? Yeah, so rebates are money flowing from a pharma manufacturer to a, uh, a third-party entity. It could be a PBM, a health plan, uh, a wholesaler, or an employer. Who, who are the winners and losers uh, is the question. And, and I think you'll see fights uh, to keep them in place, uh, most pronounced by the folks that are probably going to lose lose the biggest. Which is? Uh, the, the third-party intermediaries. Yeah. Such as? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, probably the PBMs and wholesalers. He doesn't want to say. <laughs> He's not even a portfolio manager. So, I mean, so, Michael, what is the sense of timing and that we can get anything meaningfully done here, or the Congress can get anything meaningfully done here on on pricing. Is there is there enough bipartisan support to get something done in the next, I don't know, 12 months? I don't think it's realistic. Yeah, I, I would love to tell you something different, and I would support if they did do it, but I, I don't think it's realistic. What about on the corporate side, the private sector? We did hear a little bit about J.P. Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway teaming up to create some sort of in-house uh, health care plan to try to lower drug prices and negotiate directly. Has there been any movement on that front, maybe not even with necessarily J.P. Morgan and Berkshire Hathaway, but any other corporations that have really done a good job at this? Well, um, there's a number of groups that have formed to try to address this issue um, it, you know, in, in a kind of co-op type way. I think some groups uh, like the Health Transformation Alliance are probably further ahead, um, you know, in in kind of 
grouping companies together to try to create buy, buying power. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it, so how much is that uh, actually effectively lowering prices? In other words, is that actually like a competitive aspect in markets now? Uh, these these teamed up uh, corporations. I think it, it depends on how how it's positioned and how much it's utilized. So when you look at a medical cost, you've got a unit economic and you're trying to get a, a discount. With drugs, we're actually saying there might be a different clinical therapy that is not two or 3% cheaper, it's you know, 30, 40, 80% cheaper. Um, and so that's where the power lies with drugs as compared to, to medical and, and hospitals. So Michael, this seems, the healthcare industry in general, but certainly the pharmaceutical part of it, seems like it is ripe for disruption. Where, from a technological perspective, I'm, I'm, why hasn't Silicon Valley come in here and looked at this big issue and done and Amazon.com, whatever, what Amazon did to retail and consumer, has there ever been, is that, do you think that's a focus of Silicon Valley? This seems like such a huge mess that is ripe for a technological solution. Yeah, I think it is. And, and you know, we hear from them often, uh, from the folks, the, uh, the equity backers in that area. There have been a number of companies that have come and gone with the promise that they can address this issue. I think what has occurred is most have flamed out because this is such a complex space. Um, when I look at what you know, we do today, I mean, we service 5 million people, so we have market proof, not just a PowerPoint. And, and that piece um, will become more and more important for anybody who's trying to solve it. You got you to not just say it, you got to do it. Got to do it, which has definitely been challenging when it comes to tackling drug prices in the, in the certainly in the United States. Michael Ray, thank you so much uh, for being with us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Michael Ray, founder and chief executive officer of RX Savings Solutions, based in Overland Park, Kansas. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.